doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a major pain. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Mira, a registered nurse, about her experiences as a healthcare professional. Normally on this show, we interview people living with chronic illness, but when the opportunity presents itself, I like to invite healthcare professionals to come on and talk about their experiences. You know, I know for me as a patient, navigating the healthcare system has been extremely difficult because I have a mystery illness that is not often taken seriously. It took my illness progressing to the point where it was visibly obvious to my doctors for for it to be easier for me to start get care and to look deeper for a diagnosis. And I that it, it just bothers me. It it makes me so mad when I really stop and think about it. And Mira is an old friend, and she and I were catching up. Uh, sometime in the middle of 2020 during the COVID pandemic, and just hearing about her experiences as a nurse uh, and her experiences working on the front lines of the COVID pandemic was just so eye-opening. And we also got to talking about the ways in which the medical system has a tendency to fail certain people, people that are harder to diagnose like myself. And that's when the idea for this episode was born, because we talked a little bit about what she has seen as a healthcare practitioner inside the system that bothers her, that she wishes were different. So she actually spent some time thinking about this, taking some notes, writing a list of things uh, that she wanted to share with the podcast audience about what she wishes was different about the healthcare field. And then I also just got to pick her brain about what, what she's done as a nurse. She hasn't just worked on the front lines of COVID. She also used to work in hospice care, and she has seen a lot of death. And it, this conversation is just fascinating. So interesting. I'm really excited to share it with you. A quick disclaimer, Mira and I want to be super clear that this is not intended as medical advice, nor is this intended as a representation of the entire medical community. This is one practitioner's beliefs and opinions. So I'm actually on vacation right now. I'm in Lake Tahoe with Andy and her family. Her family goes to Tahoe once a year. They've been doing it forever. And I've been lucky enough to go a few times. This will be my, my third trip to Tahoe with the Al-Hadifs. Uh, no one was able to go last year for obvious reasons. But now that everyone is vaccinated, we're all so excited to get together and have some fun in the sun. Because I'm away, I had to prep a couple of episodes before leaving. So last week's episode and this week I prepped before leaving for vacation, which means that if there's any news to share with you this week, I haven't seen it yet. So if there's any new podcast reviews or emails or patrons, anything like that, I will catch you up on what's going on next week just because I'm away. And it would be lovely to have some news to share with you. So if you would like to support this podcast, leaving a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts, uh, joining the Patreon, sending us an email with your questions or your thoughts that you'd like to share. I always love seeing all of that feedback, leaving a comment on the website. There's a ton of different things you can do. You can head to majorpainpodcast.com slash support for links for everything. Uh, the Patreon, ways to make a one-time donation, how to leave a positive rating review. All of it is listed there on that website. And I also put links in the podcast description. So wherever it is that you listen to podcasts, just check the description of this episode and at the bottom you can find all of the links. And because I don't have any news, we're just going to jump right into the episode, right into our discussion with Mira uh, about being a registered nurse and the things that she's seen in the healthcare system from the inside. Here we go. All right, Mira, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me, Jesse. Yeah, this is very exciting. So we are old friends, 
And we were catching up a while back and you were talking a little bit about being a nurse and some of the issues that you've seen in the healthcare system. And it, you know, it was right before I started this podcast and it put it in my head that it would be awesome to talk to you about that. Um, And I know there's a lot of us out there who don't necessarily know what to do as far as navigating the healthcare system. So I'm really excited to get to pick your brain today, actually have a healthcare professional on the show um, (laughs) and just, you know, get a sense of, of what your job is and what you see from the inside of the system. Yeah, I think it's a good opportunity. And I'm really happy to be talking to you about this because, you know, when I'm in my day-to-day life being a nurse, uh, it's a little bit hard to sit down and have a conversation and kind of um, a face-to-face conversation with the patient and talk to them about what they're feeling and what's going on and get them to understand my perspective and get them to really understand what's going on also in the hospital stay. And I don't know if that's going to happen today. And I don't know (laughs) if I'm going to offer any, I, I hope I offer some insight and that's my objective, I guess, um, to kind of provide a little bit of um, knowledge and also perspective. And hopefully we can kind of come to like um, an eye to eye view between patient and nurse. And that's exciting to me. Totally. Yeah, I'm very excited. Well, let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I live in California. I grew up, we grew up together in San Diego, Jesse and I, and, uh, I do, I have a lot of things that I do. I recently got into rock climbing and I hike quite a lot and I do a lot of yoga, but as far as my nursing, I just, um, it's been kind of a struggle for me. I grew up kind of like on the poor side. My mom was on social security, but um, it took me a long time to go through the nursing education. And so I just finished my bachelor's degree in December. And I'm very proud of that. Um, I was an LVN. I started out as an an LVN and I went, uh, I was skilled nursing first and then assisted living. And those were both one year each. And then I went into the bulk of my LVN career was in hospice. And wow, that was, it was a great experience really like developed my um, ability for empathy and listening and education, uh, educating the families and pathophysiology, which is kind of the what's wrong with the body and why is wrong, hmm. uh, kind of understanding the processes of the body. And then I got my RN degree and I went into the hospital. I went into acute care. I was in med surge, uh, orthovascular um, career. And that's like um, if you go in for a hip surgery or a knee surgery, or just generally if you go in and you don't have a cardiac issue, then you go to med surge. Um, and then I've recently entered this program um, that trains you, transitions you from being somewhere else in the hospital, in, 
in the hospital to the ICU. And I'm off orientation now. I've done my training and I've been in the ICU for nine months now. And it's been amazing. I love the ICU. Um, <laughs> it's like the, a lot of pathophysiology, a lot of understanding of what's wrong and what's under, what's going wrong, what's going to happen, where it's going to lead and how you can stop it from leading. It's a very, uh, those people are very critical intensive care unit and, um, and they require a lot of care um, and they require a lot of specialists to look at them and they require a lot of like balancing of their chemistry of their electrolytes and it's um, it's honestly a more the thing that I enjoy about it is it's more holistic in that it looks at the whole body and all of the system so I really do appreciate that because that's one of my passions is like looking at the whole body and what's going on as far as like psychologically not really because a lot of your patients are intubated meaning that they mm. have a um, tube down their throat breathing for them and so, so you you're not really they're not yeah they're not talking to wow. you that's tough yeah. so uh, you're just relying on tests to tell you what's wrong with this person Yes. Wow. Yes. And so that's kind of like the nerdy side of me. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> that's like, oh, their potassium's off and then you do this and this and this. And then it's like, <laughs> you can see the monitors and you're like, oh, at the end of the day, I did something. And it's, it's rewarding in that aspect. Yeah. So, wow. So what originally drove you to want to be a nurse? That is such a complicated question. I think what it originally drove me, I was um, I'm, I've kind of always been a caregiver. I think my mom, I grew up and my mom had schizophrenia when I was growing up and I also took care. And so I, uh, managed that a little bit and it made me very independent, uh, cause I had to take care of myself a lot of times. Um, and I also had, um, a friend, a best friend whose mom went through nursing school and eventually got her master's and became, um, she was a labor and delivery nurse. And then she became, um, she branched out and had her own practice. But at that point she was kind of, when it was, when I was 18 or so or 17, she was kind of encouraging me, you know, Mira, you've, you're like really good at this. And I think that nursing would be a good career move for you. And um, also, I guess my cousin had a seizure when I was really young, when I was, I don't know, we were 12 or so. He had a seizure in the back of the car. And my, I guess um, that was a point when I realized like all of the grownups around me were really frazzled by that. And I remained calm in that situation. And I think that's kind of like intrinsic to me hmm. of like remaining calm in, in tough situations. And uh, so that was kind of an eye opening experience of like, yeah, I think that I could do this. And I think that it would be helpful to other people to, you know, I could utilize my skills um, yeah. in that way. 
you found something that kind of like, fits with your natural tendencies. Yeah. 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 And then also just enjoying um, chemistry in college and all of the nerdy, like, science-y things. I kind of, I really enjoy that. Yeah. How did you, how did you pay for medical school? (laughs) Uh, Well, the LVN to RN pathway was cheaper. um, And And sorry, what, what is an LVN? An LVN is like, it's a nurse, but it's under an RN. They, there's, it's kind of a complicated system. Um, It's essentially a nurse that gets paid less and knows a little bit less. Okay. And um, uh, so that was through, I worked full time and I worked all the time that I was going to school. It was very hard long, arduous process of working and going to school. And um, uh, so I went to community college for the LVN. I did a lot of my prerequisites for the RN in community college. And then I found a LVN LVN to RN bridge at Pacific Union College, which is a Seventh-day Adventist um, liberal arts college. And that was about I still owe money, but um, that was about 20000 But a lot of nurses end up spending a huge amount um, if they can't get into like a state college or they can't do it through a community college. And the um, competition is tough hmm. going into that. The competition is really tough getting into RN school. And so a lot of um, nurses do end up owing like a hundred to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars wow. on there. Yeah, so I'm pretty lucky. I I ended up spending twenty thousand, and then my uh, the hospital that I'm in paid for a huge amount of my RN. Um, I mean, sorry, my BSN. Uh, so. I got really lucky. And yeah, uh, well, it's so impressive. I, I mean, you mentioned that you grew up on, you know, on the poorer side and to, to do this with your life is so impressive. You know, like I, I went to college for music and, <laughs> and now I'm unemployed. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's so Still an awesome musician though. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm not, I'm, I'm only unemployed because of my yeah. health issues, you know? Um, yeah. Wow. So I, something that I wanted to kind of start with is, you know, we, we've had a couple of conversations before today talking about what we were going to talk about. And one of the things that came up is, you know, based off of some experience that I've had being someone with an invisible chronic mystery illness that I often try to get help from doctors and from hospitals and I just can't get help for a variety of reasons. Um, The very first time this weird thing manifested in a serious way, I went to the emergency room and the, the, the doctor took one look at me and told the front desk people, this guy's just here trying to get drugs and we should just discharge him. And I got really lucky because a friend of mine was working at the front desk. He's like, dude, I know this guy. There's no way he's here trying to get drugs if he's telling you that there's something going on, it's actually going on. And then they agreed to do some tests, but they were about to send me home. 
Um, And that's just the first of many times that I've had a doctor tell me that what's going on is all in my head or just trying to rush me out the door. Um, They'll do one test, find nothing wrong, tell me that I'm fine and tell me to leave. And, you know, here I am 11 years later, still looking for an answer. So I have always been so perplexed by that point of view. And I would love to hear a little bit from, from your side, from the professional side, you know, um, like why things like that happen and sort of like what's going on. Yeah. That is such a big topic. And I think that it's a huge source, the drug seeking behavior it's a huge source of burnout in healthcare professionals. Um, and it's sometimes hard. Like we are meeting you for the first time and it's hard to really tell if this is real or if it's a drug seeking behavior. And it's, I, yeah, I apologize for that. It sucks. Um, that's a, that's a really crappy situation that you were in and that a lot of people face, you know, and like um, not being seen and being heard and being um, acknowledged that this is a real situation that's happening to your body. And that's, um, I can tell you a couple stories from my personal experience of like people that have come in and, they got admitted and it was definitely drug seeking behavior, you know, like a lot of patients will come in and they'll put on their phones, the timer, like they get pain medication every four or six hours and they'll put it on the timer. And then five minutes before the timer goes off, they'll like be asking you and you'll go in and you'll be like, okay, well, how much pain are you in? And they'll they'll be like, I'm in a 10 and they're like walking around the room and, Mm. um, you know, 10 out of 10 pain walking around the room, talking verbosely on the phone, (laughs) like nothing is going on. And you as a medical professional, you're taught that you have to, um, you have to trust what they say and not what, what they're displaying. Mm. And that um, it's legitimate, you know, you do have to trust what they say. You can't tell, you can't feel their pain. That makes sense. But it's also like, I would come home after a day's worth of like being timed on how quickly I give my pain medication by a patient and um, being verbally abused by them or like having things thrown at me by them or like being yelled at or having to call security because I didn't feel safe because this person came in and they wanted to, they, they needed pain medication right away. And they were angry because I was 10 minutes late and the whole situation of feeling like a drug dealer. And that's, Mm. it sucks. It sucks. And I, I, so I think, I can't say that I really have the answer of like, how do you express that this is really a legitimate problem and you're not actually here seeking pain medication. You're not here to, at the hospital for your yeah, fix. Yeah. Um, 
I think, yeah, just acknowledging that. I think that as a patient, if you do acknowledge, like, look at, I am scared of what's going on in my body. This has, this is unique. This is a scary process. This is affecting my system. Um, not being afraid to show that you're in pain to the medical professional. Cause like if I, if somebody comes in, um, there's a, a disorder called sickle cell and those people are very easy to pinpoint because they are in legitimate pain and I can tell that they're in pain and, you know, legitimate pain. I can usually tell like they're wincing, they're, they're protecting their body. They're like not doing anything else. They're not watching TV. I mean, maybe they're watching TV, but like, you know, um, and then also you had like a neurological issue happening right. as well. And I think on one of your previous things that you had said that you filmed yourself, which yeah. was, yeah, 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 which was, um, a really good thing. I think if you can get, if you can catch yourself on film, if you can get somebody to, to film you or you can set up something so that I have, uh, the medical professional has a reference of what's happening. And even though it's not happening right then. Um, and then also, yeah, just going back to what I was saying, acknowledging that I may need pain medication, but I don't want to be addicted to it. I don't take it at home or I've done this and this and this at home already to kind of um, try and handle this myself and it didn't work. If you put me on your team of like, if we're on a team together of like managing those things that are happening to you, um, as opposed to like just relying on pain medication to solve all of your issues. I think that's probably yeah. the way to go. Yeah. I think that's all really great advice. Yeah. And the thing with me was so weird. Cause like I didn't ask for pain medication, you know, I didn't even bring it up. I was just like, I'm having all these weird symptoms that like, I'm having a hard time moving my leg all of a sudden. And like, I like having all these twitchy muscle spasmy things and I don't know what they are. And, um, and I, I've always wondered if it was because, you know, I was like 24 at the time. Yeah. And I, you know, I wear loud clothing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a weird guy. And I felt like I was just kind of judged for how I looked. I think yes. they thought that I looked like a, like a drug addict, you know, which is funny because like now I'm a huge stoner, but I wasn't at the time, you know, <laughs> I like barely drank anything at the time. I was, you know, I was just a weirdo. Um, and I just think about like all the ways in which people are discriminated against in our society and how hard it must be for, um, for anyone who's not like a, like a well-kept straight white man <laughs> going in. Yes. I say this as a white guy, but you know, um, going in to talk to a doctor and like all, all the prejudices that are just kind of ingrained in our society and, and getting past that to actually get care can be like such a barrier. Um, yeah. And I, I've felt a real shift in it over the last decade. And I feel like what it took was for me to get way worse. 
um, for my symptoms to be way more obvious for yeah. me to be taken seriously. And, you know, I've said this on previous podcasts, but like switching from a the hospital I was at before to a teaching hospital at the University of Washington. Yeah. And I, I've heard this from a bunch of other people that like, if you have a, a chronic dynamic illness, go to a teaching hospital because you're much more likely to get good care. I feel like that's been a big thing for me as well. And the video was huge. You know, I, everyone has a cell phone in their pocket now. Well, a lot, I mean, a lot of people have cell phones in their pockets. They can take a video. If you are having a flare up of whatever it is that um, is usually invisible, if it's ever, if it's ever more visible, take a video and have that in your pocket. Um, and you know, it's, it sucks to have to think about these things, but like if you're going to the emergency room or if you're going to the hospital, like try to look professional, I think. <laughs> like try to, you know, I, and I, I wonder about or this look, because- Or um, look professionally sick. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing is like, if you look too professional, they think, oh, well, he's showered and shaved. Yeah. He's obviously well enough to do those things. So he, maybe he doesn't need- help and you know you talk about like the sickle cell patient being really obvious to spot how much pain they're in um for an individual who's in pain like let's say i'm going into the hospital i'm in a lot of pain today it's way more pain than i'm normally in and i'm freaked out about it the doctor sees me talking and functioning and says oh well you're no you're nowhere near in as much pain as the other people that i deal with so i so this is not a pressing concern for me as a doctor yeah because I have all these other patients that are on death's door. Um, and that like, this is a real thing is like, um, you know, the doctors see so much more than we as individuals do. So finding like the right person to treat you is so important. Is, uh, do you have any thoughts on that about, you know, this like scale of extremes that doctors see compared to what the patient is experiencing and how to kind of navigate that as a patient? I had so many thoughts about what you were saying about like university hospitals and going to those hospitals and um, going to teaching hospitals. I think those are really important uh, differentiations. And um, I have a lot of thoughts. I don't know if I have a lot of advice for you or because I, I know that you deal with pain on a daily basis and a lot of people do deal with pain on a daily basis. And what I'm saying is like a seeing pain within somebody um, and not really seeing it and just, you know, having them tell me they're right, in pain. Right. I know that that could be legitimate and that I'm just not seeing it, that they're just not showing it to me that they have dealt with this pain for such a long time. I think that the dependency for me, it's the dependency on pain medication and how it really doesn't solve any problems. It just solves a symptom. Right. And the funny thing is about the hospital, like when you're in the hospital, it's symptom management. It's not mm. holistic care. When you're in the hospital, they're trying to take care of an acute problem. So like a short term problem that they're they're trying to manage that and get you on your way, get you out of the hospital. And the whole idea of like having pain, taking pain medication and then feeling better is going to get you discharged faster. It's not going to solve your problems. And right. then it's going to be like, 
oh, well, you're not in pain anymore. You have this pain medication on board and that's fine now. <laughs> so the, right. th that's a funny, that's a funny aspect about pain medication. And also like, it just doesn't solve any problems. So that's kind of, I'm not telling anybody to not take pain medication or not even just not ask for it because there's legitimate pain and it does, it does help people. And it does actually like, you know, I have encouraged people to take pain medication because it helps them um, function with physical therapy more. It helps them move more. It helps them get out of bed more. So there's legitimate like benefit to taking pain medication, but having that be like the only thing that solves your problem, I think is the issue. Yeah. Um, I think that's so true. I mean, I, uh, yeah, like right now I'm just using cannabis products for pain management. I have used tramadol in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and it was actually, tramadol is a synthetic opiate and it was actually reclassified to a schedule one drug while I was using it. And yeah. it became infinitely harder to get my hands on it. Yeah. Um, and like all of a sudden doctors were like, well, I can't prescribe this for you anymore. And I'd been using it for years and I used it very lightly. You know, I would refill my prescription like maybe two or three times a year. So it was like I'd take it maybe once a week or something. And it was like if I was going to play a show or um, and like needed my body to be working, I would take it, you know, preemptively sometimes or just in general, it's just like I would wait till I had really, really bad pain days and then I would take it and it would like alleviate that pain for days afterwards. Um, and this was years before I was in like constant intense pain to where I needed something every day. And tramadol doesn't work every day. I, I've never, I've never had any, um, you know, prescription pain medication that worked every day. I feel yeah. like that's not what they're really designed for. They're designed for short-term use to help you get through a surgery or to get you through something critical. Um, and then for long-term care, I've been using cannabis products, which feel a lot safer. And, uh, well, for me personally, and, you know, I, I can't speak to the science of this at all, but, um, yeah, I think because I don't use prescription meds, it has made my life a lot easier at the hospital <laughs> because, uh, yes. ev every time I ever brought up like getting a tramadol refill or something, it became so uncomfortable immediately. Yeah. Um, and like I was sent to the pain clinic at the University of Washington to look into getting more tramadol and it was just a horrible experience and this guy was just like not taking me seriously and it was th that thing again where like because my pain is invisible it wasn't something that he seemed really willing to deal with um yeah which is which is so tough yeah yeah i think that also your looks you know, is, is acting against you, your age <laughs> is acting against you. And from getting adequate pain medication, and also it's like, the thought of the healthcare provider of giving you pain medication, and like, maybe you, you maybe you're not addicted or something. But what the provider is thinking at that point is, I don't want to get this kid hooked. Right. And then they go down the line of like um, prescription pain meds and then heroin and then, um, and then, you know, all of the IV drug use and then 
they are addicted and on the streets. You know, that's kind yeah. of like the ultimate thing that uh, that's the line that we are thinking, you know, at me as a nurse, even when I encounter younger people, I'm like, oh, hey, you're in pain. Let's take some Tylenol. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know that you're in a lot of pain, but let's try some Tylenol instead. Like, I don't really want to give you this because I don't want to be responsible for your decline in life. And that's yeah. that weighs heavy on my, you know, um, when I leave for the day, it does weigh heavy. Um, but I think another point that you brought up is that the amount of pain medication that you take, uh, it does, when you tell a healthcare provider the amount of pain medication that you take or the amount of prescription pain medication that you take, um, it, you know, is very low that you do that does help your case hmm. uh, because they're like, well, this guy is in a lot of pain, but he is kind of working through it. He's figuring out other ways around it. I don't know if to, <laughs> there's, um, you know, there's a lot of healthcare providers that are like, oh, you're taking cannabis problems, no big deal. But there's a lot of healthcare providers yeah. also that have a lot of stigma against that too. Like you're a drug addict. Right. Me I'm me personally, um, I don't, uh, it, I guess I can't take it case by case. You know, I have had patients tell me that they're in a lot of pain and they are in a lot of pain and I can see that they're in a lot of pain. And I ask them like, how do you manage your pain at home? And they tell me, um, they've told me, uh, cannabis, you know, products. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's great. I'm glad that you're doing something other than like going down the route of, I, you know, opiate drug abuse. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I really want to put out there that I really don't judge anyone for taking opiates. It's just the, there's a narrow line. It's a difficult balance you know, yeah. for health providers. That's so true. And, and we are in the midst of an opioid epidemic in this yes. country. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think that is, it, I, I don't believe that this is as simple as like people who ask for pain medication should get it. I don't believe that. I'm not saying that yeah. at all. I think that, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there are people who go in drug seeking, you know, I, I have no idea what the statistics are. Um, and I think that we have two problems here that like one, there are people going in who are drug seeking and two, we have people going in who can't get drugs who need them because of other drug seeking individuals. Yeah. And both of those things are bad, you know, yeah. and it, this is part of like our medical system as a whole, where the structure of it has some holes and some flaws and people like fall through the cracks. And overall, like our, our medical system is like a scientific miracle on one <laughs> hand, but on the other hand, it doesn't work at all sometimes, you know, and like people just live their whole lives in pain that don't have to be because yeah. they can't figure out why. And like, I, I'm still pushing, like I refuse to give up. Um, and, you know, I've learned a lot along the way about how to get care. And you, you know, you mentioned um, some doctors take issue with people using cannabis and some don't. And that's very true. Like, I've had some doctors where I told them I use cannabis for pain management and they, 
you know, they stopped taking me seriously that instant. Yes. Um, but most, I mean, all my doctors now support it and encourage it. Yeah. And if you run into a doctor who is, is putting up barriers and walls for you getting care, switch, find yes. a different doctor. You know, you do yeah, not have to keep seeing the same person if they are not helping you. Very true. Yeah, very true. Yeah, I think that that that's a good leeway into like what we were talking about before is how do you find a good doctor? And yeah. I think actually you probably have a good understanding of of that better than I do. But um, I think it's an important topic of, I guess, from my perspective, what I see, um, what I see as a good doctor and what I see as a good healthcare provider. And if you're in the hospital too, like uh, as an, if you have a nurse that you feel like is just looking past you um, or you have a team is just looking past you and kind of seeing your symptoms as opposed to you as a person, that's probably like the wrong hospital to be in. I mean, not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't stay there that you should leave against medical advice ama or anything it's just that um if you if you have a bad experience in a hospital where like nobody seems to be listening to you nobody seems to be um seeing you as a whole person and then maybe that's probably not the hospital that you want to show up at and i think you mentioned uh you mentioned teaching hospitals or university hospitals. And I think really, yeah, those are great places. The hospital that I'm at right now, it does have that program of like transition, transitioning nurses from one area to another. So a lot of the nurses are used to teaching and a lot of the doctors are used to teaching. And, um, and so that kind of inspires the whole society or um, that inspires everyone to seek knowledge. And uh, that's like a really good place mm. for healthcare to be. Yeah. Um, sorry, I kind of got sidetracked. No, that's great. That's great. I like <laughs> got that. a little sidetracked, but I think that um, doctors that acknowledge where they, where you are, they maybe repeat back what you're saying to them. They ask questions, they educate you, they take time to educate you on what is happening um, to your body or what, and sometimes you know you need a doctor that can say, I don't know. And that's, yes. I think, yeah. That's huge. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, you know, as a nurse too, uh, when I've told families or patients, I don't know, but I can look into it or, you know, just the, the process of, I don't know, but I'm going to acknowledge that you are having issues and that I do want to help you and that I'm going to help you. I'm going to try my best to be there for you and support you and support your decisions as opposed to push my own uh, opinions on you and my own thought of what I think you should do with your life on you. Uh, that's kind of the best relationship mm -hmm. that you can have with your healthcare provider. 
That is so, so true. Um, the I don't know thing is massive because yeah. something that I've run into a lot at the be at, like towards the beginning or in the middle of my journey so far is I'd go into a doctor's visit and the doctor would come in like a whirlwind, you know, just like spinning around, talking <laughs> super fast. Yeah. And they're just like in and out in five minutes. And I have no idea what happened. Um, and the doctors that I actually make progress with are the ones that are willing to sit and listen, like you said, and then tell me when they don't know something, you know, like the doctors that kind of come in like a whirling dervish are never going to tell you that they don't know something. They're just like, we're going to do this and this and, and this, and we'll run this test and then we'll check in with you next time. Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of the traditional way that doctors are trained to be. Um, but right now I'm actually instead my primary care provider is not a MD. I'm actually seeing a registered nurse as my primary care provider. And it's actually been so different and so mm -hmm. wonderful in so many ways. And one of the main things that he always says is, you know, like uh, when I talk to him about things, he's like, yeah, I don't know. This is not my area of expertise. I'm going to get you to the right person. Yeah. And, and then he sends me to specialists. And if that specialist doesn't work out, I'll tell him, Hey, this person kind of put up all these brick walls, didn't really make any progress. And, and then he'll say, well, that's really frustrating. We're going to try someone else. Yeah. And it's this process of, of, you know, my primary care provider telling me what he doesn't know, what he's unable to do, and then knocking down the doors of the people who should be able to until we eventually find some lead to follow. Um, yeah. And the process is excruciatingly slow. It's like, you know, I'll go see a rheumatologist. We'll find one thing off in, in one of my blood tests, but it's weird and the rheumatologist doesn't understand it. So they send me to a hematologist. The hematologist runs a bunch more blood tests, doesn't have any idea what was wrong on the rheumatologist test, but finds something else wrong and decides to treat for that. Um, but then I don't know who to see about the thing that was wrong in the first place. So I go back to the primary care provider. Um, and then like he sent me back to the rheumatologist and that rheumatologist eventually sent me to a hepatologist because yeah. I'm having these like weird copper processing issues. Um, and it's just like this, uh, every step of that can take weeks to months because sometimes yes. just like making an appointment can take forever. So yeah. you just have to get comfortable living in not making any progress or, yeah. or knowing that the next appointment that's going to happen in two months is progress. No matter what happens, it's either going to be uh, like the pathway is either going to close or it's going to branch. Um, but either way, you have to go through all of these steps and it's just excruciatingly slow. Um, yeah. But when you're with someone who thinks that they know everything, like a doctor who thinks they know everything, no new branches are going to open. And that's where I kept getting stuck is because I'd see someone who would say, you know, well, we've run all the tests and there's nothing wrong. So, um, so that means that there is no problem. This is psychological. And the doctor is unwilling to be open to the possibility that they missed it, you know, that they didn't find it and that we still have to keep looking. Yes. Um, is there something in a doctor's training that, that tells them to do that? You know, to, oh <laughs> um, is there something that tells doctors to say that if I can't find something wrong, there is nothing wrong? I, I don't know. I don't know about the training. I don't know. Uh, what training they go through. I know that they go through a rigorous process. It eats up their life. <laughs> and it's, I would not want to be a doctor because of the amount of training that they go through. And I don't know. Uh, so they have a lot of training to fall back on. They have a lot of um, 
pride in that mm. training, I'm sure. Yeah. And, um, and healthcare providers are nurses and doctors, they're problem solvers, you know, like they, the, I think that the whole process of being trained in healthcare gives you um, this sense of um, control and it gives you the sense that you do know what's happening. And then if you don't know what's happening, then it must not be true <laughs> because, <laughs> because, you know, it's been proved scientifically and, you know, we have evidence for this and this, but then um, everything else that we can't explain isn't happening. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, and I think that that's, um, as healthcare providers, we kind of do need to understand that sometimes things are out of our control, they're out of our knowledge base, and that we do need to kind of take a step back and let that loss of control put us put us in the moment. And I think that that's the, the patient's job also is like, you want to know what's what's happening and with your body and that's that's a complete loss of control which is so scary it's a very scary position to be in and you're you go to the healthcare provider to like um diagnose you uh what's happening and then when you're not capable or when you're not able to find that uh answer it's just like a really um, interesting and scary and uneven space to be in. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that the experience that you're having with doctors or with nurses of like not knowing and then throwing it away, you know, they're like, well, I can't stop. I can't solve it. So this must not be true. Yeah. You know, that's, that's where that's coming from is mm. that we don't have the answers. And so it must not be true. <laughs> I know that that's not <laughs> the best response. Um, but I, I really do uh, admire within you that drive to, cause I can imagine like that drive to like seek the answers and to be told that you don't have the answers and to just continue pushing through like a rhino through a wall or something. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, it's hard, but, and it, it takes a huge amount of um, personal strength. And I really just admire that within you. Well, I, I really and appreciate that. I will also say that I don't feel like I have a choice. Like my, my choice is to just get sicker and sicker and not function, you know? Yeah. Um, at least that's how it feels. And that's been like the, like the, ov my overall progression has been a downward one, especially over the last five years um, since I've been in this bad flare up and been out of work. Like for, for most of my life, it was like, I'd go in, into a flare up and then out of it and I'd be fine for years. And then I'd go into a flare up. I'd like stop doing everything, let my body recharge come out of the flare up and then go back to work again. Um, yeah. And that happened, uh, has happened a couple times in my life, but this is the first time where it's like, 
I went into a flare up and just haven't come out of it. And, you know, in the past, we always thought it was mold related and it may have been, we still don't know, but this time there's no mold and it's just, I'm just flared up and we don't know why. So now, but now at least we have some scientific data, you know, we know that my, my copper levels are weird. Um, and we still don't know why we're still pursuing that. I have an appointment in tomorrow to, uh, to try to figure out what the next steps are. Um, but the alternative for me is to, is to like, just accept that I, I'm sick and just do what I can with it and to stop looking. And that doesn't feel like a good option to me, you know? Um, yeah. Just because like, that just feels like giving up, you know? And this is my entire life. Like this, it's not just, um, it's not like a, I actually literally talked to a doctor once who said, well, have you thought about just kind of like forgetting about this and moving on with your life? And I was like, what are you even talking? Like, how, how what do are you we- move on to your life when yeah. you're in a wheelchair already and you're getting more? I know, I'm 36. <laughs> Where are you going? I can like yeah. ba- barely walk. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? I'm, but it wasn't, it's, you know, like that doctor didn't see me spasming uncontrollably. Yeah. Which, and this was before I thought to take a video of it. Um, and he was just awful. Like, I saw him once, I never went back. Like, a doctor who says something like that, don't go back, you know? No. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's, I'm also just stubborn. Like, I'm going to figure this out. This is like, it's like my life's main purpose is to figure this out right now. And it's not what I wanted my life to be, but it's what my life is. And I don't have control over that. So I just have to keep going and keep pushing. Yeah. I do think that you probably have learned a lot um, of coping mechanisms within within this disease process of kind of I have a toddler you know and I'm teaching him to process his own emotions and to kind of go through those emotions and not have to seek out something other than himself because it's like those are big emotions that you're going through and if you're just sitting there and going through them and experiencing them, there's a huge power to it. And I think that you, um, as far, you know, knowing you and having a lot of conversations with you and seeing how you process your emotions and maybe it's because of this whole process, but maybe it's not, maybe it's something that's intrinsic within you that you are capable of just being with those emotions and experiencing them. And then like, okay, I'm through it. I'm big enough to handle this emotion. This emotion is big, but I'm bigger, you know, Mm. like, and I really, yeah, I think that's, that's something that's coming through this podcast as well. That that. is transferable to other people that I'm like really excited about. Oh, wow. I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm always excited for the next nerdy thing I'm going to do too. You know, like I, I'm just like, I'm always ready to put down what I'm doing and pick up something fun and stupid, you know, like, like a video game or a movie or watch some survivor or love Island or something mindless and fun. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm really, I try to be kind to myself and I've become so comfortable with, um, having something so uncomfortable sitting on me that I'm able to just like put next to me on the couch and just accept that it's there, Yeah, but not have it sitting on my face, (laughs) you know, like that's, that's, that take, that took years of practice. 
Yeah. I think that's an excellent point of like not allowing this disease process to become your identity. Yeah. You know, I think that I have seen that in patients where they allow that disease process, they allow those symptoms to just overwhelm them and eat them up. And they are just that the whole identity. And, um, and, you know, of course there are things that happen to people that are, that do become like, they're not capable of being a whole person, you know, but it's, but for you personally, and for some of the people that I've heard on this podcast, um, they do have a drive for life. They have their, um, they have their passions, they have their passion projects, they have their, what they decide is the meaning of their life and um, what is driving them through life. And I, I really think that that's very important, important to keep. Yeah. And you, if you don't have that, you create it for yourself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For a lot of us that are homesick that can't work, it's really hard to give your life meaning. And for me, like content creation is what does that. I this that's what this podcast is. <laughs> it's a way to kind of focus everything I've experienced into something that can hopefully be useful to someone else because that makes me feel like it wasn't a waste. And it also gives me something to do on a schedule that feels valuable. And I hear back from people that it is, you know, value valuable or important to them in some way, and that makes me feel valuable and important in some way. And you have to feel that. Like, if you just feel worthless all the time, it's just, like, so overwhelming. Yeah. And, and a lot of us, I think, look to external sources to feel worthwhile. And that is, those things come and go. You mm-hmm. have to, like, generate it from yourself. Yeah. And learning yeah. how to do that is so hard, but so doable. Every single person on the planet can do it. It's just, it just takes work. And time. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's an excellent point of like looking to other sources to solve your problems as well. And like, um, as opposed to trusting within yourself that you are strong enough and that you can, you can survive this and that, um, you know, you're going to do your best to give your life meaning. And I think that that raises a point um, that I've been thinking about as far as you and, and Andy and then versus myself and um, my ex spouse who also had an undiagnosed um, GI issue. Mm. And I think that, um, You and Andy the have kept a really good boundary on, um, or you've tried to at least, and it's very hard when you have um, a if you have somebody that you're with for that other person to not feel like a complete caregiver mm-hmm. and to not feel the emotional, physical burden of of taking care, but also. You know, I think that you've kept a good boundary in that 
you're doing as much as you possibly can to do to be as independent as possible yeah. and to also honor her boundaries and honor her um you know ability to say no like and she honors your ability to say no you know like that whole aspect of um being in a relationship like that of where you can ask things of each other and it's okay to say no i think that's yeah. really important when you are when you're sick or when you're not feeling your best um yeah it's so important and i think that there's a natural tendency when two people are healthy and they're dating and one of them gets sick the healthy one cares for the sick one that's just kind of a thing, you know, that's yeah. fight me on it. That's what happens, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but when, when one person is sick all the time, you have to address that because one person can't care for the other person all the time. That's a full-time job. They should get paid for that, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and being, being aware of the fact that like, as the sick one, there's the natural tendency to be like, well, I need your help. You know, I don't have a choice. I need your help. Um, but it's really important to pull yourself out of that and look at it from the other person's point of view um, and recognize how frustrating that can be for the other person because maybe they don't feel great either and maybe they need some help. Yeah. Um, and to, to try to always pull yourself out of your own situation and see things from someone else's point of view um, has really helped Andy and I to, to try to keep that balance. And like, you know, we, we lived together for years and then we now live separately to help with that boundary and it's really helped. Like we live down the hall from each other in an apartment building. It's super fun. We're, we're loving it. We're having so much fun. Um, like she comes and stays the night here. I go and stay the night there. Sometimes we sleep separately. And if I'm having a day where like I'm just in so much pain that I just can't, like sometimes sensory input is really painful for me. So sometimes just like having a conversation or trying to be present is just really yeah. tough. So those days we now spend less time together. Because like, I'm just going to sit here and watch TV. That's the, the most soothing thing for me in that day. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no reason for her to give up her day to do that with me unless she wants to, you know? Yeah. And like, we have the love and the trust and the support to make our own decisions and making sure that we give each other space to make our own decisions has been so important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that she kind of touched on when I was listening to her is that, that, um, uh, the problem, um, it automatically, when somebody come, becomes sick and then they become chronically ill, it becomes more of a codependent situation. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the way that you bring yourself out of that codependency is like having the ability to say no, but also acknowledging when you're doing something where resentment is building up. Right. Because that's probably like the killer of the of the good feelings between you two yeah, is the amount of resentment that builds up. And yeah, I don't, um, because if you're doing something that you are resenting, you probably either shouldn't be doing it or you should be, be bringing it up, you know, yeah. so it's in the forefront of like, hey, you know what, I'm doing this and I'm making a lot of assumptions 
um, that this is why you're not doing it or this you should be doing it or something is, you know, I have this whole internal monologue that's happening inside me and I'm not sharing that with you. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm still having a lot of resentment and that's why this is, you know, you're feeling that tension between us because this is what's happening because the other person has no idea. And so true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and you can like, I don't crack know how that, we got on. you can crack that tension open and release it. If you talk about it, I, I think we all get like, you know, I think of myself as a good judge of character and something that comes with that is that I often think I know what other people are thinking yes. and I am wrong all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like sometimes I'm right. Like, I read Andy really well, but sometimes I'm straight up wrong or like I can tell she's uncomfortable or thinking about something, but it's not for the reason that I thought. And if you carry around these assumptions without talking to the other person or these resentments without talking to the other person, they just grow and grow and grow into something unmanageable or harmful. So, it's so important to make sure that you're on the same page and to like talk about your assumptions. That's I love how you said that. That's so important. Yeah. 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 It's funny that you say like, um, when you say that you think that this is what's happening with, within her, like you, you're like, oh, Hey, I can tell that you're uncomfortable. And then you make an assumption. This is why she's uncomfortable or this is, you know, and the funny thing is that that's not why at all. (laughs) It's like completely different may not even have anything to do with you. And maybe she doesn't, you know, maybe that other person doesn't even know what's happening. Um, Totally. Yeah. (laughs) The best way to know is to ask. Ask. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. There's something I want to make sure that I ask you. No, this is all great stuff. I got into that. I'm really, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Nothing nursing related (laughs) at all. (laughs) But you know, the whole, I mean, the whole idea of this podcast is to talk about chronic health problems and yeah. re- relationship management is such a big part of that. So, it's I, huge. I think it everything is. we just talked about is so important. Um, but I do want to switch gears a little bit and ask you, you know, in one of our previous conversations, you mentioned that as a nurse, you have seen a lot of the systemic issues in the healthcare system. Um, and I just wanted to kind of pick your brain about that. What does that mean to you? What have you seen in the healthcare system that bothers you? Okay. So the problems that I, I made myself some bullet points. Yeah. And I'll talk a little bit about them. Um, I don't think that they are as big in preventative care. For one, I don't think that we educate people enough, um, in how to live a healthy, uh, viable life. I think that there's a huge issue with American society and what is health, like quote unquote healthy. And there's a lot of um, sugar and carbs and a lot of uh, smoking and drinking and a lot, just a huge amount of unhealthy habits that people down the road could prevent some serious health issues because I'm seeing a lot of people that are very sick and this, they do have chronic issues and they are very easily diagnosed. You know, they have um, diabetes and heart disease and lung disease. And, and you look at these people and that are facing some really 
tough decisions, hard processes in their system. They're going through a lot of agony and you don't want them to be, you don't want to see yourself or anyone in your family in that space. And the funny thing is that they can prevent it. And I like, that doesn't really have anything to do with this podcast because I know this podcast, uh, what I would think the people listening to would be having conditions like yours that they'd really have no control over. But there are a lot of sicknesses that people do have control over. Another thing that I think is an issue with healthcare is that it's not holistic enough. They don't really consider that the person is a whole person living a fulfilling life. It's more just looking at each system or each problem that they're having or what is the biggest problem that they're having and what pill you can give for Mm -hmm. that problem. Yeah. And the funny thing is like you and I, I was thinking about this today. We had a conversation a long time ago about what it was like to be a woman and be subjected. um, I mean, objectified, sorry, not Mm. subjected, objectified. And, it occurred to me today that 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 conversation of objectification and and feminism and what it was like to be objectified it's like rung in my head over and over like a couple times you know that's just like one of the conversations that's really stuck in my head but in the healthcare system you know our inability to look at a whole person is objectification of the person. That's fascinating. You know, we're like, oh, you, you're having problems breathing or, oh, your foot hurts or like you're having this weird shaking or something. And that is like blinders on, we're going to deal with that and figure that out. And that's, yeah, I think that's, it's not always the case, but it is an issue in healthcare um, is the issue of really, I wish that we could acknowledge the importance of everyone's life and, and acknowledge the specialness of each person and see that Sometimes those solutions that works for one person are not always the solutions that work for the other person. And we need to kind of ask questions to see what works best and to see what's happening and not make assumptions. So I think that's kind of the holistic care. It kind of goes into the preventative care also. So, yeah. And then I think that um, that kind of bridges into follow-up, the lack of follow-up. And that's something that I experienced with my my ex-spouse is when you go to see a doctor, you go and see them. They like tell you to do these tests and then they don't necessarily tell you that you should come back. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. And then like, they just drop off the face of the earth. And I'm like, wait, what, what happened? What's next? 
yeah, who cares? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know what happened to you, nor do I care. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. What is that? Um, <laughs> and that was an that was an issue with my, you know, that was an issue because my partner was completely okay with not knowing what was happening to him. And I was kind of like, no, we have to go back. <laughs> we have to figure out what's happening, you know, like, uh, and he's like, well, the doctor didn't tell me to come back. So yeah. I don't have to come back, you know? And um, I think it's just the lack of follow-up. And also like, I personally uh, have, wondered about my patients too. Like, I want to know their story. I want to know what's happening with them after they got discharged. And that's so rare. Like, did the things that I did help them, mm. you know, and that'd be so cool to, to figure it out and to see where they were left after we did all of those things. Um, and then I think that the other issue for me is now that I'm in the ICU and this really has no, uh, I don't know if it really, it's kind of a tangent from this podcast, um, from this, from the view of this podcast, but I think that the inability to give up or not, not, not necessarily give up, but like when the inability to say that, you know what, we are, when somebody reaches um, a time when there's no quality of life left for that patient, mm. um, that we are prioritizing a heartbeat rather yeah. than a quality of life. And, and personal uh, choice too in that environment. Yeah. And personal choice yeah. and a lot. Yeah. And, um, Oh, that's this so tough. Really and you worked in hospice for a while. So, I mean, you have, yeah. you know, you you know this stuff. Yeah, I think what I'm talking about, I want to clarify is when somebody is at the end of their life, when yeah. they're like not able to really communicate anymore, when they're clinically brain dead or when they are not clinically brain dead or but there is something seriously wrong with their bodies and the family's um, choice to and the provider's support of that choice of like just to hold on for all hope and that it's a hard subject to talk about but I think that um, we don't in the hospital we don't the we don't push uh, do not resuscitate. Um, enough as opposed to full code. So full code is where you do, when you're really sick, you do all interventions, you do CPR, you put them on the ventilator, you put them on um, some sort of dialysis. You can even go as far as putting them on uh, something that is a machine outside of you that that essentially acts as your lungs. It bypasses your lungs. And so all of those are very invasive. And um, essentially those people will come out of it without having any quality of life. Mm -hmm. And so you think that's, that's a, a huge frustration for me that we are prioritizing in the healthcare system. We're prioritizing the, 
heartbeat and respirations over the um over the quality of life like that person really doesn't have any quality of life they're going to be existing in bed with a bunch of machines keeping them alive for a long time and that's just how it's going to be for them and it's so tied up in what you're saying about holistic medicine as well is that if we looked at that person as a whole human being and we thought about the choice that we'd want to make for ourselves all that gets thrown out the window and you're just like well we just have to keep them alive because that's what we have to do and you know my i just had to put my dog down recently my 17 year old love of my life miles um and he had been struggling with some health problems for years but we had been able to keep his quality of life relatively high yeah and then we we were just getting to this point where it's like things could things could go downhill rapidly and he could be in a lot of pain um because he had an enlarged heart and a heart murmur and had gone in and out of heart failure um and he had hypocalcemia like there was just a lot going on and i just like woke up one morning um, well, he had, I mean, been waking me up all night, kind of crying, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I just knew something was wrong. I gave him some pain medication. He went back to sleep for three hours, woke up crying. Um, and then that happened a couple times. And I just like, you know what? This is the day. Like something has just slipped across the edge to where he now needs pain medication to be comfortable. And... I and like this is today's the day. Like I just looked into his eyes and I knew that it was the day. Aww. So I called Andy and she got a few hours off of work. I spent the whole morning sitting with him on the couch and just like giving him all the love. And he was really stoned on his pain pills and he was just smiling and so happy. And we took him to the park and he could barely walk. Like I, you know, we didn't like look into what had happened on that last day. I just knew that it was the last day, you know? Yeah. So we just made it his last day and we gave him a great day and he had a smile on his face all day long, you know, like we took him to the vet. We like had the injection and he fell asleep in my arms and with a smile on his face. And there was nothing that we could have done to make his last day any better. Like he had a wonderful last day. And for my partner of 17 years, you know, my best friend, that's what I needed him to have. That's yes. been like really important to me for years. This fear that like, what if my dog dies in agony? You know, like that terrified me. And to have the choice, you know, I can't ask him. I wish I could, but I feel like I made the choice that he would have wanted. And I had that option because he's a dog, you know? Yeah. We don't have that option for our loved ones and for ourselves. And, we, you know, maybe we should. It just, yeah. it struck me. I was thinking about this recently because of this. Like, it struck me during that experience with Miles that the amount of choice that I had was a gift in that environment and that we don't have that much choice about ourselves. And that feels weird, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's like, yeah. The funny thing is that when people do choose to like we are going to withdraw care and, you know, they get and that person is not going to live beyond the hospital or something. And they get the chaplain, they get their um, priest involved, they get their family to come and and 
I'm aware, um, and we get the palliative care team as well, uh, I'm aware as the nurse that's taking care of them that that is a tremendous amount of, on the family's side, bravery. It's mm. like a tremendous amount of bravery and it is a hard decision. And I just have like so much respect for that decision and for that family and for the process that it must have taken to um, make those super hard decisions. And the experience of being that nurse when the family does, you know, allow that person to go peacefully without all of the medical stuff attached to them, it's transformative mm. and it's just beautiful. And it's, it's a real, like, I'm, it's, it's an honor to be a part of that process and to like have that family trust me enough to take care of their family member enough to be in that very like spiritual space with them and to be supportive of them and um, just to kind of, uh, you know, we talk about hope in um, in the medical field, and a lot of the times that hope is is based in hoping that the person gets better or that you're going to improve their life. But like, if you change the narrative and you hope that the you hope that you can decrease their pain. You hope that you can make this last portion of their life meaningful. Um, you hope that they get that connection with their family members that they, they need on that last day. You hope that everybody is able to say goodbye in the way that, you know, provides closure for those people. And, you know, it, um, wow, we got really heavy. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's also, it is, it is also beautiful, you know, and what you're saying is, yeah, is amazing. It's, and it's so important that every single one of us is going to die. Yeah. 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 There is a certain to have a sense of peace and, and, a sense of peace around that or a sense of like having like a beautiful spiritual moment is beautiful. Yeah. 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 It's, and to say, you know, like as the family and as the um, care provider to say, I don't have control over this and it's okay. Hmm. Like to be okay in that space and, and to say, Everyone passes away and it's okay. Yeah. It, it, it does happen. Um, yeah, I think that that's really powerful move. It's a very hard move. It takes a lot of courage and I just am. And that's kind of another reason I enjoy the ICU is because I do get to be in those spaces when they're, the person has their last day. And um, 
And it's so, it's so meaningful for me to be that, um, to be the nurse for that person. Yeah, that's amazing. That's so powerful. And, and something that, you know, again, finding the thing that naturally suits you, this is not something that most people would be suited for. So, I'm so glad that you have, that you are able to fill that need for the people, your patients, you know, I mean, that's such a powerful thing. Yeah. Um, Speaking of working in the ICU, I know that you have been on the front lines fighting COVID. um, And I just wanted to ask you about that a little bit because COVID, like long haul COVID is a major pain. Like absolutely. Like that is something similar to, I mean, a lot of the symptoms are very similar to what I've been experiencing myself for years. Obviously it's not that because I have had mine since before COVID started. Um, But, you know, like the, the brain fog, the muscle spasms, the chronic pain, the things that we're learning about this disease. um, I, you know, it's all, it's all so new still, but, and we don't know how long those symptoms last, but there are people who got COVID and their lives like instantly changed and they are now living with a chronic illness. Um, So I'd love to hear a little bit about what it's been like on the front lines and what you've seen with COVID. I can't, uh, (laughs) I can't really speak to um, the chronic issues that COVID causes because the, the ICU is a place where people are like imminently path, you know, they're Mm. imminently dying and then we're going to save them from dying. Yeah. Um, So actually the chronic issues are not necessarily something that somebody comes into the ICU for, but we have had, wow, this, yeah. So I did choose to go into the ICU during the COVID epidemic and, uh, and, um, or pandemic, I'm sorry. I chose to go into the ICU because of the, uh, the COVID pandemic, uh, because it did change my life. Um, I think with a lot of people, like the whole experience changed my life or changed their lives as well. And that was a f- <laughs> kind of a funny situation, I guess, because it wasn't necessarily like not a lot of people, I think, were running towards COVID <laughs> at that time. <laughs> but um, wow, this whole year has been a huge experience for me. I initially, initially, it was very scary. And uh, I was talking to my spouse at the time about what was going to happen. And I was, it was very scary. And people, some of the nurses, because the CDC was saying, like, you didn't even need to, in the beginning of it, oh, you don't need to wear masks. And so the hospital, not my hospital, I think, but some hospitals were actually firing people for wearing masks to work. Or oh wearing, God. yeah, nurses got fired uh, for that. Wow. And, which is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Right when we need that. nurses the most, they're being fired for doing the thing that would then become critical. Yeah. And <laughs> it was it was such a scary, like, 
the funny thing about it, the parallel between COVID and what's going on with you is, or you and me and uh, that situation is that it was an unknown process and we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know how it manifested. We didn't know how we didn't know anything at first and I didn't know anything. And I was doing a lot of research of like, well, what, how big is the virus? What masks do you need? What kind of PPE or protection do do I need? What do I need to do? How does it stick onto, like, how is it transmitted? And how, what does it, what kind of uh, things does it stick to? So I did a lot of actually research on like, flu virus and different masks to wear and different homemade masks and what cloth was the best. And (laughs) (laughs) at first, you know, I was doing a lot and I had a spouse. I had my mother was part-time living with me so that she could take care of my toddler while I was at work. And so there was three adults and a child living in my house at that time. And, um, and I actually asked my a lot of a lot of the nurses did actually, uh, so that they could go to work. They um, isolated themselves from their families, yeah. and it was very hard. Um, I my spouse ended up moving to Oregon with my son because. I literally felt like every day I was coming home, bringing, breathing death on them. Mm. You know, it was very scary because people were dying from this. It was a huge, it, it was crazy. It was scary. There were a lot of deaths. I think now that we're kind of on the other side of it, almost, we don't, we forget easily maybe, but, um, there was a, the death toll just kept rising. People were not working. And um, so I just didn't feel comfortable. And so I ended up being alone in my home and working and doing a lot of extra shifts. I was because they needed it at the hospital. There was just such a huge surge. And I was in the med surge unit at that point and going to the um, ICU to help out. I wasn't an ICU nurse at that point, but I did kind of experience the teamwork that they had. I experienced what, you know, all of the nurses were very open and when I was asking questions and what they were doing and what machines they were using and how they approached their care. And so I decided like, okay, I'm gonna be an ICU nurse. Uh, those people in the ICU that had COVID were very sick. And so I went into orientation in the ICU and then I actually, there was another surge back in December and they asked us to get off of orientation uh, sooner than we were expected to so that we could help out because there were so many patients in the ICU. Those people in in the ICU that had COVID were very, very sick. And it was hard as an ICU nurse because um, you'd go for three days 
you'd go, you know, to work for three or four days in a row. And you usually they do a good job of keeping you with the same team. So you get the same patients those three days and the experience, um, the COVID experience versus the standard ICU experience is that the COVID experience, you'd go to work, you know, on Monday and then on Thursday, by Thursday, your patient had gotten, you'd go to work on Monday and your patient maybe was on um, high flow or they were on CPAP, which is like they're awake and they have a machine that's helping them breathe, but not necessarily breathing for them. And they're kind of invasive, but they're awake and they're aware and they can talk to you and they can eat and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then you'd go in, you know, for your second day and they'd be a little bit worse and then you'd go in for your third day and they'd be intubated and they'd be really bad. So, um, as opposed to like, now I'm getting to experience the normal ICU patients and you're actually seeing improvements Mm -hmm. from what's happening and you're seeing them like be discharged from a really critical situation and you're seeing them like get extubated, which was unheard of, which means like they're not on the ventilator anymore. They pull out the tube and they can breathe on their own. And that whole experience I went through in the beginning of my ICU career at the surge of the December surge of COVID, it was like, these people are never going to be extubated. They're just going to pass away. And it was dire. <laughs> it was wow. It was very, uh, it was hard. It was very hard to experience, but it also, I still try to look at like the bright side of like, it was a good experience for me. And it was, I, I, it helped me value my life and it helped me reprioritize what I wanted in life and really think about where I was and what I wanted and, uh, what I was allowed to do what I should be doing and how I could get to where I wanted to be. And yeah, so the COVID experience, it's like, there's good and bad. There's like dark and light in it. And I've experienced, I think the extremes of both. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, the difference now being the vaccines, the Yes, please get vaccinated if you're listening. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You've seen a lot of death. (laughs) I have. Yeah, I have. How has that affected you? How is it? I don't know because I haven't seen, I haven't been the, I don't know what to, (laughs) I don't know what to compare it to. (laughs) I've seen a lot of I have. I've, I've, I have seen a lot of death. I think that it um, it's helped me to reprioritize my life and it's helped me to like realize that nothing is promised in life. Mm. And that's kind of, um, you know, when you realize that, 
that nothing is promised, at first you feel like, oh my God, <laughs> like this is awful. <laughs> but then you realize um, nothing is promised is a freedom as well. Mm. You know, it's everything that happens is not necessarily okay, but you know, like that you can work through it and that, uh, that I can trust myself. And I, yeah. So, uh, but how has death, I don't know if I answered that well enough. I think it might, be, might be good to talk about the first time that I did CPR. So the first time I did CPR, you would think that being in the healthcare system, um, I would have done CPR sooner, but actually the first time I did CPR was maybe uh, less than a year ago. And uh, what happened was somebody, it wasn't my patient. um, It was somebody else's patient. I was being trained for the ICU and my preceptor who I loved so much, but she was like, I got this, you know, I'm taking care of these patients that I was assigned you know, in the ICU, my team, you go to the code. And so I went to the code. I was a little scared because I had never done CPR before. We do CPR on a dummy um, to like practice a lot, but I had never done it on somebody. And um, I went in and we did CPR and, you know, you're, watching the monitors, you have a whole team of people around, you're kind of hyper aware of what's happening, what medications they're giving, what the doctor is saying, what the directions are, what the heartbeat is, how well you're, I mean, you're you're not, you don't have a heartbeat at that point, but on the monitor in Mm -hmm. the ICU, you can see you're pumping Mm -hmm. uh, because you do CPR, you pump on the chest, you usually have a an airway established and you're giving that person breaths. And um, so you're pumping their heart physically. You're providing the air, the oxygen for them. And it was a very visceral experience of like being outside somebody and pumping their blood for them <laughs> and um, just trying your hardest to keep that person viable and to help them give them the best chance of coming out of it and living and helping them their heart pump again and to start again and to be pumping independently. And that's what you're looking for. You're doing the compressions and then you're giving medications and then you're waiting for the heart to reestablish itself. And it didn't happen for that person. He, they ended up passing away and we, uh, at the end of it, you have a lot of adrenaline at first, you know, like it's like you have a lot of adrenaline. And um, so we stood around and we had this little prayer sort of, it's not necessarily a prayer. It was just like something that you read 
um, that it, at that point, no, none of the family was allowed in, I think. And, uh, the, what it said was something like, we're here, we're honoring that this person had a life, that this person, um, had meaning and that we may not know the meaning of their life, but we do honor, um, this person and just that experience. It was just super powerful for me. Mm-hmm. It really brought things home to me of like, I didn't always have the control that maybe I wanted to have. And that, that I just really needed to live my life like day by day. And that also each person that I saw as a patient was important and they had a history and they, that I needed to honor them every single day as opposed to like make this a job um, that just like mechanically happens. So, <laughs> wow, we, I mean, damn, we should all be so lucky to have someone like you helping us in our health journeys. You're, you're a badass. This, <laughs> this is crazy. I mean, oh, I just imagine us as teenagers. <laughs> if we, if we could have like listened to this conversation as teenagers of us now, yeah. we'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> Life is yeah. crazy. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't have ever expected me to yeah, or you. Yeah, it's just we did turn into very strong individuals, I think. I'd like to think so. I mean, yeah, you're you're such a badass. I'm so amazed and impressed, and I'm just so grateful that you were willing to share your time with us today. Um, you did an amazing job. I this was such a great conversation. I hope so. Yeah. Is there anything that we um, anything in your notes that you wanted to cover or anything you wanted to plug or share before we wrap things up? I think that we covered quite a lot today. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> Just, you know, yeah. life and death and everything in between. <laughs> we got into it. Yeah. We really, we really took out our shovels and dug. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, that was an awful. <laughs> oh no, I'm terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you mean emotionally, you know, I get you. I'm with you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm the worst. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, there's something, look, you're right. Life promises nothing except for one thing, which is that everyone is going to die someday. That is yeah. the only promise that any of us have. And there's something magical about moments where the barrier between life and death is thin yeah there's something so human and so alive about that moment yeah Um, you know and i experienced this with my dog recently like when my dog passed away i felt his spirit leave his body and yeah 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 the funny um i guess one of the things that i do want to add for that is my as far as my time in hospice the funny thing is um when somebody gets close and they're still able to talk they often will say 
that they see their family that have passed on and they're that they're talking to them. And I had like this one older lady and she was in her hundreds. Wow. And she, she had gotten like a couple different plaques every year of like how old she was. And um, we just kept going to her house and kept expecting her to pass away. And then one day she started talking about how she saw her mom in the garden and she, the mom was asking her to come on a walk in the garden. And that experience actually of like um, having your family call upon you at the end. uh, And she, she passed away shortly after that. Like it was like a week after that. And um, that experience of having your family members, having your loved ones come to you and call upon you at the end or saying that they're with, they're in the room with you or something it's actually not a hallucination. You know, it's such a super common experience and um, it's a phenomenon that hospice people see all the time that people talk about all the time. And so when you say that you felt his spirit, you you know, Miles, Miles, Miles. Uh, when you felt his spirit, I totally think, I don't know too much about like, you know, how much I believe in God and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But I do really think that there is a spirit and just based on my time in hospice because of that experience. Wow. Man, this was awesome. What a great conversation. I, it was great. I keep finding myself at the end of these conversations, like, I'm so glad I recorded that. That so, I'm yeah. so glad that we can share this with other people. Um, yeah. Yeah, damn. That was that was fantastic. Uh, Mira, you did an amazing job. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having this. I really think that it is a valuable podcast for a lot of people to listen to. I really um, hope that you are able to get it out to so many people. I hope so, too. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. All right. Bye, Jesse. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, MajorPainPodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to all of our $2 a month supporters, our $7 per month patrons including Naomi Adele Smith, and our future producers at $25 per month. Learn more at Patreon.com slash MajorPainPodcast.